Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London, I'm Josh Noble. Mass protests against politicians' failure to tackle climate change have been making headlines, most recently when members of Extinction Rebellion gate-crashed a Brexit debate in the House of Commons. Matthew Green has written about the group for this week's FT Weekend magazine, and he spoke to Neville Hawcock about its aims, along with one of the movement's leading voices, environmental lawyer Fahana Yameen. Matt, we've just heard some audio from a semi-naked protest that disrupted a Brexit debate in the UK Parliament earlier this month. The protest was organised by the group Extinction Rebellion. Can you tell us what Extinction Rebellion is and how it started? Well, it's rather extraordinary, isn't it, the way this movement has burst onto the scene, seemingly out of nowhere, in a matter of months. It started in Parliament Square at the end of October with a group of about 600 people who decided that enough is enough. We are going to force the government to declare a climate emergency through a campaign of mass civil disobedience. Within a few weeks, that number had grown to 6,000 protesters who blocked five bridges across the River Thames for the best part of a day. And on Monday, the plan is to shut down central London with 10,000 plus protesters and parallel demonstrations taking place in cities across Europe and the US. But the group actually has slightly longer origins. A core group of activists, one of whom is called Gail Bradbrook, who is the daughter of a Yorkshire coal miner and who has a PhD in molecular biophysics. She's had a long history of involvement in social and environmental activism. And she's worked with several other collaborators to create a movement that has actually gone viral in a very short amount of time. And the goal is to use mass civil disobedience to try to force the government to start treating climate change like an emergency. In the article that you've written about Extinction Rebellion, you quote a man called Jem Bendel, who's the Professor of Sustainability Leadership at the University of Cumbria. And he wrote a paper called Deep Adaptation, a Map for Navigating Climate Tragedy. Can you summarise what he wrote and say something about its influence on Extinction Rebellion? Yeah, Deep Adaptation is a really remarkable paper. It was published last summer by the University of Cumbria. And essentially, it lays out Professor Bendel's reasoning as to why he thinks that the collapse of industrial society is now inevitable as a result of essentially non-linear climate change effects. Because one of the big things that climatologists are concerned about is that as the amount of greenhouse gas builds up in the atmosphere, feedback loops start to kick in and it becomes almost impossible to reverse these very dramatic non-linear changes. And Jem Bendel spent two months reviewing the science and he came to the conclusion that we are looking at an unfolding train wreck here. Now, obviously, not everybody agrees that society is definitely going to collapse. But reading that paper is pretty sobering. And if you talk to people in the environmental sustainability world, including in academia, they're not saying that this guy's a total outlier. They're actually saying that what he's put together is very compelling. And the amazing thing is that paper's now been downloaded more than 350,000 times. So it's gone viral through word of mouth. 
And it's one of the main texts in a way that has inspired a lot of people to look at Extinction Rebellion and say, right, it's time that we take really radical action to force the government to start doing something about this. It's kind of a wake up call then. Yeah. I mean, scientists have been issuing wake up calls for a very long time. But what happens in deep adaptation is that Jem Bendel sort of almost strays out of academic convention. And at one point he writes in the paper, you know, if you take the logical implications of climate science to their conclusion, should I be even writing this paper? I mean, why are you even reading it? He kind of hits this almost existential crisis as he's writing it and says, you know, I spoke to him. He said, look, people need to realise how serious the situation is. And actually, if you read the science, you need to look at your whole life. What are you doing on a daily basis? Because it might be that we don't have a great deal of time left before things really start to get messy. You say that people need to realise, or Jen Bendel says that people need to realise how serious the situation is. But Farhana, you helped to broker the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change. And that was surely a huge achievement, and that was a recognition of how serious the situation is. What's your view of that? Well, it was an enormous achievement for the international community. It took about 10 years, actually, to negotiate. It was meant to have been agreed at the Copenhagen Conference in 2009, which resulted in acrimony and collapse. So it took another sort of five years for the system to fix that. And um, Paris is the first time that the 1.5 degree limit which had been advocated by small island states, by the very vulnerable countries, Mm. was accepted as a benchmark for safety and put there alongside the well below two degrees limit. Can you just clarify what we're talking about when we're talking about 1.5 and 2? Yeah, basically, since the early 1990s, scientists have said to try and keep global average temperatures from increasing more than two degrees. Mm. Um, And that's been the informal benchmark and has been considered the sort of safe standard. And it was very clear, and certainly Jim Bendel is not part of this equation, for most scientists and heads of government from these vulnerable countries have known for a very long time that there were massive consequences and they were experiencing those consequences in climate impacts all over the world. So that's what they were arguing for basically in Copenhagen in 2009 and Paris helped cement that into the legal architecture and said that all governments and all policy efforts should be guided by staying below the well below two degrees target and ideally striving for the 1.5 safety goal. Well, that all sounds highly reasonable. So why did you become disillusioned with that process and become more involved with a more radical group like Extinction Rebellion? Because even when we negotiated Paris, the actual pledges, the targets that governments tabled were too small to achieve the two degree limit. You know, we're on track currently to somewhere nearer three degrees. So we're nowhere near to, let alone the 1.5. And we knew that in Paris. What had been hopeful at Paris was a set of provisions to ratchet up what's called climate ambition. And governments had agreed that they would come back before 2020 and revise their national pledges and will be doing other things to try and reduce the gap between where we needed to be, according to the scientists, and where we were politically. And personally, I just felt I couldn't really see that happening the same way that we were conducting diplomacy in the same way that NGOs were doing the same kinds of campaigns, waiting for, you know, the next electoral cycle to align itself with everyone else. And we had some massive setbacks. You know, obviously, Trump came in in 2016 and we had a number of other governments, Australia, now Brazil. So many setbacks that weren't on the Paris timeline, as it were, and actually makes that job very, very difficult. And I was personally quite 
exhausted and frustrated having been to 23 of these COPs. 23 of these. The climate change meetings organised by the UN are called the Conference of the Parties, COP for short. So these are the big annual meetings that take place in November of December of each year. And I just couldn't see the way through without something very different happening. And I think that's what is the backdrop to Extinction Rebellion, this huge frustration in mood, this huge recognition that we are literally at the cliff edge and that we've got to do something very different than just turn up once a year and you know recycle previous decisions and say we're going to increase ambition the next year round you know in essence we're kicking the ball into the long grass every time you think that governments and activists haven't been recognizing the gravity of the situation what is the worst case scenario that we're talking about here or maybe even the best case scenario well in terms of human impacts you're already seeing some pretty big consequences of increased heat waves, increased typhoons, increased hurricanes, mass migration, huge impacts on food productivity, acidification of oceans. So these will affect billions of people and their livelihoods and ability to literally survive. So some of that is locked in already, and that's the gloom and doom and the societal collapse scenario. I don't think that that's the only scenario. I think there are two basic variables where the dice will roll. One is climate sensitivity, which is the way in which the entire Earth system responds to increased CO2. And we don't know that, actually. We don't know whether it will be at the upper end or the lower end of climate sensitivity. And the other is the degree of international cooperation that we have as human societies. So that we do have some control over. You don't have control as an individual or a nation on that. But actually, we can do a lot through cooperation and through acting. And that's the bit that I think Extinction Rebellion and other groups that are rising up can show. So we would be in a more optimistic world, even if we were reaching severe tipping points. It's not inevitable that, you know, when we had these inevitable or worse typhoons, that we would then actually have more deaths because more robust infrastructure better safety provisions help you avoid deaths. We have typhoons all the time in the US and others. They don't usually result in high levels of death, whereas you do in countries that are poorer and have poorer infrastructure. So I don't equate what nature doles out to us with inevitable societal collapse. That depends on how we shape our own future, and that can be determined better by cooperation. Can you tell me something about the protests that Extinction Rebellion is planning and how you hope that those protests are going to bring about this kind of greater cooperation? Yeah, so the idea is basically from Monday the 15th in London, but also worldwide because Extinction Rebellion is a global movement, that there'll be a shutting down of some key London sites. We've got five basic locations. I can tell you them now. Marble Arch, Waterloo Bridge... Oxford Circus and Parliament Square, as well as a presence in Piccadilly Circus. So don't go there unless you want to join, which I encourage everyone to do. I'm so cycling in on that day, I think. Cycle in, cycle yeah. in. So at those sites, we'll be both showcasing the solutions as well as telling people what the underlying problem was. And the solutions are essentially about cooperation, about learning to be empowered, about asking the political system to do more and to be more responsive to both the planet's needs and our own needs. And not to think that this collapse is inevitable, not to just accept that this is all there is, because change can happen. The research shows that mass, peaceful, civil disobedience really works. And what it all depends on is people realising that they can shape the political future, that it's not locked in. 
I think you could argue perhaps in that case that it's of a piece with other political strands at the moment, which is a sort of disillusionment with the way democracies are working, that they're not responsive enough to what people want, which is obviously playing out with Brexit, but also you would say with the urgency of the climate question. Yeah, I think people are seeing that the political systems around the world are not responding to the very big challenges that people expect the politicians to solve. That's why we have to take action and not just rely on letter writing to MPs or asking them polite questions through the normal parliamentary procedures and not just having single issue campaigns. We need a much bigger political change and um, mass peaceful protest does that. That sounds like it will involve something of a change of mind on people's part. And Matt, I know that you've written in the piece about the psychological impact of environmental destruction. Can you tell us a bit more about what the psychological impact is that perhaps we're not altogether recognising and how Extinction Rebellion is hoping to harness that? Well, we're living at a moment in human history when science is telling us that unless we make drastic changes to almost every we do at every level of the economy and society, we are heading for a potentially uninhabitable planet. But we go on about our lives much as if nothing's happening, as if it's sort of someone else is going to sort this problem out for us. And that's a classic trauma reaction. It's numbing. It's resorting to distraction or denial. And we see some people deny climate science altogether. I mean, that's the most convenient escape route. But We watch the news, we see mega fires ravaging California, we see ice caps melting, and we see scientists telling us that we've got to steer this ship pretty fast. So that creates a kind of pervasive sense of cognitive dissonance. And I think the reason Extinction Rebellion has grown so rapidly is because there's many, many people out there who are feeling this. They can sense that something's deeply wrong and that our political system isn't responding. And so even if you don't necessarily believe the campaign's going to work, you join Extinction Rebellion, you find other people who are willing to talk about this enormous crisis that people prefer not to look at. I mean, I found as I was reporting that a lot of the people I was talking to were saying, yeah, yeah, I've been waiting for something like this for years. I felt so alone in looking at this and being so worried and no one wants to talk about it. Suddenly there's a place for people to go. There's a community. And I think my hunch is that we're going to see this movement grow and grow because these problems aren't going away anytime soon. Farhana, does that echo your experience? Yeah, very much. I guess I took a bit of time out to deal with my own issues of grief and frustration and sort of depression and thinking that, you know, I'd wasted 25 years of my life negotiating and leaving my kids and being away for two, three months of every year. And I felt very much when the IPCC report came out in October, just before Extinction Rebellion launched, that... That that was the report that said, basically, we've got to cut carbon emissions by almost 50% in 12 years to avoid going down the road of two degrees, tipping points, and that we're now down the hot house earth scenario where we're in a kind of hellish new equilibrium. So when that came out, a lot of the environment climate community that I was part of, you know, issued kind of press releases and did the normal alert, you know, briefed in the media and went on TV and so forth. And Extinction Rebellion actually staged a rebellion and a mass sort of sit-in and a die-in outside Downing Street. And that's what made me sort of realise, you know, that that's the kind of courage, that's the kind of actions that are now commensurate with what the scientists are saying. 
And I think that the public had absorbed in the summers before all of the wildfires in Greece, in California, the droughts here. We've had floods, you know, a million homes in the UK are at risk of floods and have experienced floods. We're going to probably have another series of very serious droughts this year. There's a one in four chance that we'll have the most severe droughts in the UK. So we're looking pretty dry so far, actually, in my garden. Yeah, we had, you know, the hottest February. So people know this experience is what's happening every day. They don't have to read a book. They don't have to read their newspapers to know that something is seriously wrong. And I think that's what's made me join is that realisation that people are willing to stand up and be far more courageous than perhaps they were in the past and to say, we've got to do something different. We've got to try something bigger and bolder. So what can I do? If you are feeling exercised about this, obviously you'll say we should learn more about Extinction Rebellion. But what can one do as a citizen or a consumer if one is worried about these things? I think it's not all going to be solved by us just taking individual consumer decisions. Those are important and they are things that I've done myself. For example, I haven't bought any new clothes for a year because fashion is a huge emitter. It's the same size as Russian emissions, if you look at it as a sector, as a country. So some of these issues like changing your diet, that's the same thing. If you look at all the emissions from dairy and from meat production, you know, that's about the size of India in emission terms. So these individual decisions can add up and are already being taken by individuals. But you can, I think, not just do that, but also join a mass peaceful, I would say peaceful civil disobedience movement, because that's what I think is needed right now. I would call everyone to rise up and also affirm what it means for you to live in a community that is going to face some pretty awful impacts. We're seeing that in Europe. We're seeing the results. The migration crisis is linked. The refugee crisis are linked. These are refugees coming from countries that are deeply water stressed, subject to food security issues. So I think we've got to challenge the political system as a whole. Farhane Yamin and Matthew Green, thank you very much indeed. That was Neville Hawcock talking to Matthew Green and Farhane Yamin. And you can find the link to Matthew's story in our show notes. Thanks for listening. Remember, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, you can find our latest subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.